Hello and welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host. This is episode 28 for April 28th, 2020. It's great to be back and in familiar territory because somebody once accused me of doing an Apple podcast and I hadn't realized that, well, it's not quite true, but it almost is. I often talk about Apple-related topics on Parallel, so I decided this time around I was just going to own it. And I invited a couple of great guests and friends to join me in a little discussion of uh, Apple topics, and they're both very well qualified to do so. First up, Ken Ray, the host of one of my very favorite podcasts, which I get to hear every single day, macOS Ken, also the host of In a Few Minutes, a newer show, and a co-host of The Checklist. Hello, Ken. Hey, Shelley. Thanks for uh, thanks for asking me to be here, and thanks for saying that about macOS Ken. It's nice. It's true, and it's good to have you. And Robin Christofferson, who is the head of diversity and inclusion at AbilityNet in the UK, he also has a daily podcast, the Dot to Dot podcast. And something fancy I just learned about Robin. After his name come the initials M-B-E. First of all, welcome, Robin. Hi, and I listen to Mac OS Ken every day as well. <laughs> oh, golly. That, I feel weird now. <laughs> We're all just here to be Ken Ray fan people. That's all it is. So, All right, Robin, we have to talk about this because you and I also are panelists on the Mac Accessibility Roundtable, a podcast about guess what, accessibility and the Mac and, and Apple things generally. But the thing I did not know about you is that you have this uh, three-letter acronym after your name, <coughs> MBE. So would you care to explain exactly what that is and what the heck you did to earn such an honor? So I know I sound perhaps about nine years old, but actually I'm very, very old. And I've been working <laughs> for this UK tech charity, tech and disability charity, AbilityNet, for a long time, since '96. And a couple of years ago, I was really, really surprised and honoured to, yeah, get this MBE. It stands for Member of the Order of the British Empire. And you go to the palace. And in this case, it was Prince William who did the honours, pinning the the cross on me. And it's basically, well, people, um, a lot of people, you know, thoroughly deserve it and they do amazing things. But for me, I think it was just that I've been around a long time <laughs> and making noises about accessibility, about how important and empowering technology is, but it needs to be done right to be able to be fully inclusive and let everyone come to the party. So yeah, it's just for being around a long time. So it was for services to digital inclusion, which is, as I say, helping people realise that if you just do things in a, in a certain way, then people with different disabilities are going to be able to use them better. People who are using them in extreme environments, which we might get on to talk about a little bit later on, will be able to use them better as well. So it's a win-win. So yeah, I've just been around like a bad smell for a very long time. <laughs> well, congratulations. That's exciting. And I, I hope you get discounts at the movies or some other <laughs> tangible benefits, maybe. I don't know. Cheaper iPhones? Yep. I was going to ask <laughs> if you get to carry a sword wherever you go. Right. Um, I don't know if I get like diplomatic immunity or something, that would be good, wouldn't it? You know, well, if you because... come to the US and get in trouble, we'll try it with you. <laughs> I, you know, like I blind in charge of a guide dog. And if I accidentally, I don't know, cause some horrendous accident or something, but yeah. So yeah, no, nothing that I know of, except that kind of, uh, it's nice to have a recognition for something that I'm not quite sure what it was, but yeah, really, really chuffed. And he did not tell us this. Apparently, it happened some time ago and just came up the next time whenever we were on the Max Accessibility Roundtable, Robin was just like, hi, how's everybody doing? He didn't feel compelled to 
to brag to us. So I feel like it's time to brag on him in public. <laughs> I was going to say that's, I mean, it's not just the accent, but you can tell he's not American because I'd be like, oh, excuse me, it's Sir Ken Ray. Sir Robin. You can call me my lord. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that uh, set, sorted, let's uh, talk about some uh, Apple news. Apple usually has... Uh, things to talk about, many of which Ken talks about on a daily basis to do with uh, money and finances and supply chains. But they've actually put out some new products recently, which is where I'm most interested in starting uh, with the iPhone SE, which is the same name, different phone. And without getting too deep into the specs of the iPhone SE, it is a phone that looks a lot like the iPhone 8, but has a processor that is a lot like the iPhone 11. It's got one camera, so it is not the most exciting thing to super camera buffs. It has touch ID rather than face ID. So it is what one might call the budget phone. Pretty good value. And so I just want to throw it out to you guys. What's what's your take on the iPhone SE? Uh, it's fine. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's it's it's... I feel like the iPhone, when the iPhone SE, the first iPhone SE came out, I felt like we were sort of turning a corner with iPhone at that point. Instead of it being a, you know, once a year and here's the most money. And if you want an iPhone, but you can't afford the most recent iPhone, then you'll get last year's iPhone. And it felt like iPhone SE was was sort of the original one was turning a corner where, okay, we're going to take it off of being an annual thing. We're going to take it off of being a huge event every year. And you have to have the latest iPhone to... When you need an iPhone, you get an iPhone. Now, the lengthening replacement cycle sort of indicates that we're doing that. People are holding on to their phones longer. Um, you'll hear everybody, uh, every financial analyst on Wall Street say that. Uh, CIRP came out with numbers the other day as well. Uh, Consumer Intelligence Research Partners came out with numbers the other day as well that said the people on average are holding on to their phones for over three years now. Like the largest number of people are holding on to their phones for over three years um, so maybe that was happening without me realizing it. Maybe you don't have to have a budget phone that comes out one time a year and a flagship phone that comes out another time of year for that to happen. Maybe we've already sort of reached that place. Just like nobody buys, well, not nobody, almost nobody buys the latest MacBook Pro every time a new MacBook Pro comes out, right? You buy a computer when you need a computer. Phones are sort of starting to become that as well, I think, for a lot of people. And so the iPhone SE is like, it's it's great for people who either can't or don't want to spend $700, $800, $1,000 on a phone. It's a great phone. You buy it, you're going to have it for a number of years. And you are not the person who was waiting for the iPhone 12 or 12 Pro or 12 Pro Max anyway, if you were going to jump on a $400 phone instead. I mean, I should jump in because I think my, my duty here is to talk about... Um, well, from two angles, one is, you know, me as a blind person and the other is the disabled community more broadly. And this is, you know, the accessibility sp I'm sprinkling on the podcast here. So Thanks, Robin. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the disabled community first. So they typically don't have as much uh, disposable income, so they don't renew, um, you know, if, certainly not every year. I mean, this is just very generalized, broadly speaking. Some are obviously going to be, you know, in, in the higher income bracket, for example, but it's true that the employment rate for people with disabilities is much, much lower. For example, people with a vision impairment here in the UK of any kind, right across the spectrum, 73% are out of work at the moment. So I feel really, really fortunate to be in employment. So it's a, it's a tough landscape out there. And I think that this phone is absolutely brilliant for people that 
um, get all the benefits of of iOS and its accessibility. And huge plaudits to Apple for bringing accessibility up out from under general in iOS 13 and giving it the kind of uh, profile that it deserves. And hopefully people will tinker and have a look in there because I don't think anyone should you know, uh, settle for a vanilla experience. You know, we're all different shapes and sizes, etc. So that's really, really good. I think the only people for whom um, going to one of the higher end phones would be really useful is for Face ID and for people that have no useful motor or dexterity uh, um, abilities at all. So if you're completely paralysed, Face ID is an absolute gift. And if you combine that with voice control, which again came in iOS 13, still needs some improvement, but it's an absolute boon for people that want to do everything hands-free. So, yeah, Face ID is, is really useful. If you need a larger screen because you've got a vision impairment, then the larger screens are great. But for me as a blind person, I'd go so far as to say that these are the blind phone, in quotes. So as a blind person, I probably use the camera more than most people, and certainly more than you might think a blind person would. And that's because there's all this software on there, um, machine learning, AI, in quotes, based uh, apps like Microsoft Seeing AI, which can recognise text and objects and faces and all that sort of thing. So I'm using that all the time to, you know, find things and read letters and stuff like that. There's crowdsourced apps like Be My Eyes, which basically give you a remote pair of eyes from volunteers all around the world at a moment's notice if you if the AI isn't doing it for you. And all of those work fine with lower end cameras. So we're not necessarily excited by LiDAR and the latest, you know, um, profile view. Now, what's it called? Portrait view. Portrait mode. Yeah. And bokeh and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, something like that. And also... Touch ID is an absolute boon for somebody who doesn't look at the screen because I've got my AirPods in. I'm listening to voiceover all the time. The phone's in my pocket. Hardly ever get it out because you can just drive it all from your finger on the screen uh, or it's under the bedclothes. So having to bring it out and use Face ID is actually a, um, a real hassle for a lot of people. So this looks like the ideal phone. And we obviously don't care about screen size if you if you can't see the screen at all in fact we have screen curtain on which is a thing in the accessibility settings to heighten your security and you know it just blacks the screen out and the only downside to having an lcd screen still in the se model is that all it does is blank the screen it does nothing to the lighting panel behind it so it doesn't double your battery life like it does with uh the OLED screens, which, you know, when it's black, it's black. It's not driving any pixels at all. Hmm. So, yeah, absolutely love it. Now, I've got an 8, so I'm not in the market because mine's still super fast and, you know, there won't be much in it for me. But my wife's home button on her 6S died uh, last week. So another accessibility feature, we turned on assistive touch, which can give you a software a little button equivalent in the corner of the home button and you can configure what that does and I know a lot of Chinese customers who haven't got a disability turn that on straight away out of the box so that their home buttons aren't you know tainted by use which uh, keeps the the resale value up so that's the thing that they do over there but she's quite happy to carry on using this and I'm saying you sure you know you don't want mine uh you know look at my home button it's got this sassy new thing which you know, if you put your T-shirt over your thumb, it doesn't actually click at all. How cool is that? You actually need to put skin on it. But she's not buying that, so it doesn't look like I'm going to get my 
upgraded <laughs> SE until hers actually dies, which will maybe soon, you know, I'll have to help it on its way. You, you, I was going to say, you're not going to commit some sort of murder, are you, Robin? Because <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have this idea and I haven't figured out how, but I'm actually fascinated by pass along phones, especially among pundits or nerds or people who basically want the newest thing, but they need to do something with the perfectly good phone they have, which is why I always call the iPhone SE or whatever the low-end phone. And I and I do it derisively and sexistly on purpose. I call it the wife phone because I've heard so many podcasters talk about, oh, well, I, got, I gave my wife this phone so that I could get the 11 Pro Max, <laughs> which I just don't yeah. think people have any idea how obnoxious that sounds. <laughs> that I mean, it's true that yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> ladies' pants, would you call it? Ladies' trousers, pockets don't aren't, aren't that big. And there so you go. There have we should been all have little phones. <laughs> yeah, about how the new SE form factor is, you know, potentially going to be too big for some of those old dainty little purses or whatever. But um, yeah, my wife. <laughs> you're you're isn't making interested. a case, aren't you, Robin? You, well, <laughs> yeah. if your wife has a six S, she needs to get yeah. some sort of phone, whatever yeah. it is. I think it's. I, I love the idea of the price point of the SE, and I still think, and I when the $1,000 phone first became a thing with the 10, I felt like if there wasn't an immediate backlash, there was going to be some sort of desire for people to buy lower-end phones, and I think that's been proven out with the success of the 10R and the 11 and the, S, the older SE to a lesser extent, and there are projections that the new SE is going to do quite well. And I'm I'm happy for Apple to continue to sell $1,000 phones if they can do so. But I am delighted that there's a recognition that you need to make a good phone that you can sell for less because you've either eliminated the face ID or the second camera, which for some people is a really big deal and for a lot of people is is not a big deal. And Apple has done a fairly good job of having trailing phones, you could still get the eight lines before this one came out. Now that's not available. So I guess if you're an eight plus size customer, you're the only one that's kind of left out because you have to go to a, a maybe a 10R or maybe a Pro of some kind. But uh, otherwise, the SE seems like a good deal for an awful lot of people, most of whom are not the people who are reviewing phones because those people got an SE review unit and sent it away after a week. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't isn't the 11 about the same size as the uh, as the 8 Pro? As the you, 8, do, as the 8 or the SE? It's it's a little bigger, and also it goes edge to edge. So the 8, I think the SE has about the same bezel as the 8 does. No, so the, I, yep. I apologize. I was asking about the uh, iPhone 11 and the iPhone 8 Pro. I feel like the they eight, were 8 Plus. The 8 Plus, yes, I'm sorry, oh, the 8 Plus. E, that's I feel like yeah. they're roughly the same size because I, I went there. About, I think yeah. you are right about that, yeah. Because I went from the 8 Plus to the 11 and did not feel any sort of uh, any sort of loss in screen size or things like that. In fact, I feel like the screen might be, a t I mean, well, the difference is negligible, I guess would be the thing that I would say. Yeah, yeah and I think, I think the physical phone might be smaller, but the screen bezels are smaller, so you get... Yeah. You, you get to carry a smaller phone, but you get the same amount of – or close to the same amount of real estate. It's very close and, and great battery life. I've, I've had 10R, and I feel like the 10R and the 11 are very similar and also similarly good in terms of you know battery and screen size. I got to say, I mean, yes, a $400 phone is definitely much more palatable than a $750 phone or a $700 phone. What's funny to me, though, is the $1,000 phone makes the $750 phone <laughs> seem affordable. 
That's like <laughs> right? that's one of the things, honestly, the thousand dollar phone did. It made the it made the pain of paying uh, seven hundred, seven hundred fifty bucks or eight fifty if you want the you know higher capacity. Um, it made that not seem as bad. You get a bug in there because you can look right and go, "Well, I'm not spending a thousand. Exactly. <laughs> and we all used to get subsidized phones, and now for we got used to yeah. paying full price for the phones, whether it was through some lease arrangement or however we did it, and then they rose the phone prices on it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. $200. Remember that? It was no problem. Mm-hmm. Every two years, $200. Yeah. Got the yeah. latest and greatest. And then they're like, okay, well, this year it's 750 Oh. <laughs> yeah. I think my <laughs> phone's looked. good for another year. <clears throat> well, and I, my, my mother and my husband both have older phones than I, and I've said to them, hey, you want an upgrade? It's only $400. And they're hearing the $400. They're not hearing the upgrade because they don't have a re- they don't have something wrong with their phone that is making them want to change. My mother has the original SE, and I think if she saw the new SE, she would really like it. But she's not going to any Apple stores anytime soon. Right. So chances are that until something bad happens to her phone, she'll probably say, you know what, I'll just keep my 400 Yeah. So another product that Apple uh, has pushed out is the Magic Keyboard with trackpad for the iPad Pro. There was an update to the iPad Pro earlier in the year, but not at the same time as the new monstrous, uh, monstrously large, I should say, keyboard and trackpad for the iPad Pro. So now we have a $300-ish keyboard trackpad that allows you to turn your iPad Pro, already quite an expensive iPad, into a laptop. And uh, Robin, what's your take on that just in general? And I think uh, we talked the other day, but you can can repeat it about how iPads fit in your life and maybe not even on your personal desk. Yeah, so iPads, um, they have a mixed reception, certainly in the vision impaired community, uh, which I kind of live and breathe most of the time. Um, or at least, you know, when I'm consuming podcasts and, and my friends tend to be uh, visually impaired. So um, there's so much that you need to know about and be abreast of and learn. You know, you, you almost have to be a techie to be able to drive these devices. And some of them love the bigger screen. They love the bigger real estate, you know, for the similar reasons that, that sighted people do. And obviously you can roam your finger around the screen and everything underneath your finger is spoken. So in a way... It's an equivalent experience. You know, you'd think that a bigger screen would benefit everybody. But I just get lost. I just get lost. And we've got, we, as a family, we've got a, a, an Air 2. So what's that, 7.9? Quite small. Or is it 9.7? Can't it's remember. It's 9.7. Yeah, I have one of right. those. And Not it's my living mini. room device. I throw it around on my couch and <clears> don't take very good care of it anymore. But it still works. Still runs the current software. Yeah. But I found I find that quite daunting, really. I actually prefer smaller screens and the discipline that that um, requires of, of UI uh, creators. You know, I like fewer controls. I like n- not having a great expense of, of options to choose from. I'd rather deal with, you know, going backwards and forwards through nested screens, etc. So having said all that, some other um, people absolutely love it and they're probably more adept at kind of roaming around and taking advantage of the split screen or the, you know, the multitasking, etc. But a friend of mine bought the new iPad Pro and now has the new keyboard as well. And he's completely blind too. And he was hoping to replace his MacBook Pro. Um, and within a very short time, about a week and a half, he decided that that wasn't going to happen. And so that is winging its way to our family 
for a song. Thanks, Stephen. Um, and so my wife, I think, I don't know how she's going to take it, but it's going to be hers and I'm definitely going to hammer on it and see how I get on driving it from the keyboard. That's the thing that I love. As a, as a um, blind Mac user or Windows user, you have to learn the keystrokes for everything. And that's how you drive things really quite efficiently by learning umpteen keystrokes. And it would appear that in iOS 13, there are loads more. And obviously it depends on the developers of certain apps as well, but not quite enough, not yet. Um, so I'm going to really try my best to like it, but I suspect that it's just going to end up replacing hers. But she might not even like it. She might think it's too big and maybe even too heavy because we have talked about, or, you know, there has been comment about, you know, how heavy the iPad is, let alone the keyboard, which probably doubles the weight. So we'll see. I'm touching wood here. I'm hoping that she's going to enjoy it. Um, but if not, we could pass it on to someone else. Are either of you trackpad users on laptops? Do you look forward to that part at all? So she, her, her total computing is on the iPad uh, too. Mm. So um, I'm wondering if she'll actually want the keyboard, um, let alone the trackpad. Uh, the rest of the family use the MacBook Pro that we have, the 15-inch tank aircraft carrier and they use the trackpad extensively so we'll see if those guys do for a blind user of mac os and now thanks to ios 13 again mouse uh, cursor support and there's a setting in the voiceover things for blind people that when you roam your finger around wherever the mouse pointer la you know cr uh, traverses is spoken out so i'll definitely try that and so i could kind of recreate the experience of roaming your finger around on the screen itself, but just using the trackpad. I'll see. Ken, I think you're something of a trackpad touchscreen skeptic, or is that too broad a way to put your point of view? Uh, well, I had a conversation with Alison Sheridan for this week's In a Few Minutes. I think, I can't remember, I think it might actually come out on Tuesday, so it might be the same day that we're doing this for now. I'm not sure. Um, she's actually got a... a an iPad Pro and she did pick up the Magic uh, Trackpad keyboard whatever they're calling it as well she's a huge fan I know uh, John Champion with whom I used to do uh, Mission Log was always walking around with his iPad and whatever keyboard I don't know if he's got I know he's got an iPad Pro I don't know if he's going to get this keyboard or not the thing that I liken it to for me personally is um, and I said this on in a few minutes when the first Apple Watch came out, I didn't get the first Apple Watch because I felt like I needed an Apple Watch. I felt like I needed to understand Apple Watch. And so I got it because knowing that we we're going to be talking about it for years, I felt like I needed to live inside it and, and you know, know what people are talking about. Otherwise, I'm just talking about this, like, you know, dongle that, well, that's fine for other people. And I'm going to sound ignorant. I have now come to a point with uh, iOS 13.4 of feeling like if I'm going to say anything, I'm going to have to get a keyboard. Now, I've, I have low-ended my iPad. I have the regular iPad, the seventh generation. Um, so I'm thinking, as much as I don't want to spend the 150 bucks, I'm thinking I'm probably going to go ahead and get the Logitech keyboard and trackpad because instead of it just being a, well, you don't have to type on the screen, you can now type on the thing, right? Type on the keyboard the the operating system for iPad has gotten to a point that I know that it's not just that anymore. And so I, I guess that's a long way of saying pass. 
<laughs> as far as the questions <laughs> about the keyboard. I I don't know I wasn't excited about it, but then the question that I finally put to Allison, um, uh, Allison Sheridan, uh, on this week's show was, is it enough of a game changer that I no longer know what I'm talking about? And she said yes. And so now I kind of feel like I have to check out of the conversation and say, okay, until I can actually... And normally what I would do is this weekend I would be at an Apple store and I'd be playing with one of the keyboards. But of course, you know, that's that's off the table now, which is kind of a drag. It's like, oh, do you want to find out about this? Yes. Okay, well, that'll be $150. Really? Exactly. To find out? Really? Okay. <laughs> Darn. They have a very liberal returns policy. <laughs> yes. Well, that's true. And Apple is selling the Logitech keyboard. It's just... Whatever. Yes, probably Probably <laughs> next time all of us talk, I'll have one and be like, yeah, it's great. Or right. yeah, it's over there. I don't know which one it'll be. <laughs> I feel like that's the road I have to go down because I do a book about iOS accessibility and I had planned to do an update for 13.4. I don't do an update for every dot release, but there was enough that had changed. And frankly, there were enough bugs that had been fixed that it made sense. And then this whole trackpad thing came up and the mouse support more, more significantly initially. And I felt like I had to understand it because cursor support as an accessibility feature had existed for a while and there had been so much punditry about, oh, well, now it's real. And I wanted to know what the difference was between what was there before and what was there now and how it was supported. But to be honest, I did a fairly minimal version of that for the book update. I focused on the mouse because nobody could get a trackpad at that time. And I didn't want to wait a month, even though it would have been the people that are getting trackpads now are getting them earlier than they expected. So it would have been mid-May you know, regardless of the pandemic situation, it probably wouldn't have been possible for me to feel comfortable holding a book. But I'm at the point now where I have to understand it and I have to be able to talk about it. And when iOS 14 comes out, there are probably going to be enhancements and changes. And people are going to say to me, well, how do you feel like it's changed and how do you use it? And how can people with your disability or a different disability use it? And I've I got to know that and still be skeptical. So I think, yeah, I'm going, I'm inclined to go that route too, the Logitech one, because for me, the the sheer size and heft of it is a deal killer for daily use and as, as well as the cost. If the only option were the Apple trackpad keyboard and it was 300 bucks, uh, I, well, I'd probably complain about it on podcasts and then I'd go get it because <laughs> it's what I do. Right. I'm really interested to know because... Um, another very useful accessibility feature in iOS from day one, is it day one? Not sure. Shelley can tell me. Is Zoom, where you can magnify the screen up yeah. to ridiculous sizes. Well, from 2009, yes. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, some people need to do that on the, their phone, on the iPad. And obviously, the bigger the screen, the less you'll have to zoom in. So the less you have to scroll around. If you've got external trackpad support, can you move that viewport, you know, that smaller... Yeah area around without having to obscure the screen well yeah. or mouse support so, can you use a scroll wheel with and it? the pinch and zoom if you that can would, do that on that the on an external me. trackpad you're not obscuring the thing you're manipulating on the screen as you zoom in and out on what you're wanting to read or whatever so i think there are some you know um unexpected users of these technologies that will you know really benefit from them um but yeah i don't know Cursor is, is a cursor going to add a lot to iOS otherwise? 
I kind of think it is depending on the kind of work you do. If you're doing a lot of text editing, the idea that you could use a cursor to select and manipulate that text as opposed to using your finger. And I'm, I'm leaving out Apple Pencil because that's not something I've chosen to get interested in and it doesn't have a specific accessibility implication, although I know people who are blind who use it. But when you talk about selecting text the way you do with a laptop or with a computer and a mouse on, on an iPad, that's that's pretty intriguing. And uh, I, yeah, I wonder how people who have used assistive touch cursor support are going to benefit from trackpad and cursor support as well, because a trackpad, in theory, is another great touch surface for assistive touch, because all assistive touch does is give you a menu of selections that you can point at in one place. You can you touch the screen, but you don't have to make swipes and double taps and, and all and complex gestures that are difficult for somebody who has some motor function, but for whom it is limited. And theoretically, and I'm not the person to do that evaluation, but theoretically, a trackpad would be a great assist in that way. Yep. And there is lots of new um, accessibility features to get excited about, like head control, which I think, you know, most people might want to try out because who who doesn't want to move their head and have their cursor move around and raise that? You can configure three other movements, raising eyebrows, sticking out tongue and oh, what was the other one? Blinking um, to do whatever you want them to do. Click, right click, you know, force touch, whatever it is. So, yeah, who wouldn't want to play with that? Let's talk about WWDC because, as is everything these days, it's affected by the pandemic. Apple has told us that it's going to be online. We had a sort of a preview trial run slash sticking their toe in the water with a a live developers forum on accessibility last week. I didn't have the opportunity to see how that went, and I haven't read anything about it. But uh, it it seems like that's an indicator of things to come. And I guess I'm wondering... Uh, and I have been to WWDC, but I don't go regularly. I don't think I don't think any of us are, are regular WWDC attendees. But I guess I'm wondering what your thoughts are about what's likely to happen with WWDC. What you'd like to see? Um, just just what's what's your sort of what's your sort of take on it? And Ken, so why don't we start with you? Um, no, I'm not a WWDC attendee at all. Actually, I mean, I went when I lived in San Francisco. I think I got into maybe a couple of the keynotes. But that was about it. My favorite part of that was then I would go, you know, sit at a diner near there and I would hear all these developers talking, which was which <laughs> yeah, was totally. neat. I mean, you know, on their cell phones, assuming that they were far enough away from Moscone that nobody would care. And I mean, it wasn't like I was spying or anything like that, but it was always fascinating to hear them talk about uh, what had been announced. Um, I wish, I'd like, I wonder if everybody who went to the accessibility uh, presentation last week uh, is really taking the NDA seriously because we heard it was going to happen and I have neither seen nor heard anything about how the presentation went because you're right. The whole thing was yeah. supposed to be they're going to do a presentation and 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 Apple made a point of saying uh, to the people that it invited, uh, you'll be able to ask questions uh, both after and during, which made it sound like they might have handled some of the problems. I mean, just on this call between the three of us, I've heard audio cut out because somebody was talking while somebody else was, you know, uh, about to say something. How how are they taking care of that for how many people? How's it going to go? I mean, honestly, not being a developer, I will be interested to hear how it went once it's over. Because for us, 
I mean, we're going to be able to watch the keynote on our Apple TVs the way we always do, or on our iPhones, or on our iPads, or wherever we normally watch it, or as a podcast later. I mean, for the people who aren't developing, who aren't going there, it's not going to be a huge change. But like, are they going to charge a lot of money for people to go? Are they going to limit it to 5,000 people the way they normally do, or or 3,000, or however many it normally is? I mean, there's so much that we don't know yet. I'm, I'm fascinated to see how they handle it. And what I'm really looking forward to hearing is when it's all over, what are developers going to say about how it went? Because as wonderful as it is to, you know, go there and see a band that was popular 15 years ago at the end. I'm sorry, that was Macworld that did that. That was Macworld that did that. <laughs> as wonderful it is, as it must be to go there and, you know, hang out and have the meetings in the minds and, and bump into people and here's the sign of the time, shake hands with the guy who actually developed the thing that you're most interested in and all that stuff. Um if they end up serving more people more easily this way, and maybe, you know, without not just the $1,500 to fly there, but then however much it costs to stay in San Jose, plus getting there and back again. Um, I mean, is this the way things go going forward? Uh, unfortunately, right now, it's all black box stuff. I mean, it's it's we're, we're bound by time. So I'm, I'm more interested in hearing in July what people have to say about the thing that happened in June and how they feel it compared to other WWDCs, how much they feel they got out of it, um, all that stuff. Yeah, and it feels to me like I, I would have expected more announcements of what to expect or even a set of dates. <laughs> but p- perhaps the indication is that it's going to be, I mean, it's all, you know, live to tape, right? So mm-hmm. maybe instead of saying, well, why don't you set aside a week to watch all these presentations? Maybe they do trickle them out or maybe there's some other way of, you know, delivering them. And, and the question about who's going to get access to what is really interesting. The the cliche about conferences is that it's always who you meet up with in the hallways and who you have breakfast with. And that's true to some extent. But at WWDC, it's also about these one-on-one lab interactions that developers get to have with Apple engineers. Mm-hmm. The presentations that I've seen from WWDC, and I usually watch at least the accessibility-related ones plus the keynotes, is it's very much one-to-many. The Apple person gets up, talks for an hour. There might be a Q&A section, but usually it's very short. And mostly the Q&As, they, they say, come and talk to us at the labs. And so it feels like what are the presentations might happen in very much the same way they have before, but what's going to substitute for those lab experiences? Are there just going to be 50 Zoom calls you can choose from or FaceTime calls that you can choose from if you're a developer? Well, I mean, so I want to know what did they actually deliver the this event on or through? Right. Because, you know, you can only invite 32 developers to a, a FaceTime <laughs> platform. <laughs> um, was it Zoom? You know, was it? I don't know. Not Microsoft Teams, obviously. Um, so, yeah, I'd be interested to know that. And but as far as, you know, what Ken was saying, you know, what only time will tell. I don't think the world's ever going to be the same again. I mean, I'm a huge proponent of remote meetings, online meetings, because time and again, I mean, I, I'm very fortunate to live in a nice part of the country smack in the middle nice castle you know commutable to london it's about an hour and a half the number of times each month i had to make that journey and then often it can be another hour and a half to get across town to wherever the the client is or the event is and the meetings could have been done online you know why do they want to see me i certainly can't see them as a blind person so i don't get any of the kind of extra body language and stuff and 
if it's a big event where you can have chats in the corridors and over lunch and that sort of thing, I totally get that. But nine times out of 10, people just want to sit around a table and that's so inefficient. And, you know, I don't get anything extra out of it at all. So for the last several years now, I've always been asking if there's a, a dialing option, a, you know, a remote option. And pretty much all the time they've been completely obliging about that. And increasingly other people are being asked to come in like that as well because once the facility is advertised you know this meeting's also going to have this dial-in uh you know online option um other people take advantage of it too and i can do four or five of those in a day and i can do other work as well as opposed to the whole day going so you know people are going to look at this time as being wow okay <laughs> you know that's a lot easier that's a lot better that's a lot greener um and this pandemic is going to have a really long tail, as Ken was saying. So, you know, the last thing we want is to do something that just feels reckless. So I think that's going to be the case. I'd love to know more about this particular event, how it was delivered, how it went. It will be a template for WWDC, or at least some uh, authors of different articles, different pieces have been saying that that's what Apple, you know, tacitly have been saying it was uh, a dry run for that. So, yeah. Let's see how it goes. But um, I'm not a developer, not of uh, iOS or macOS anyway, uh, but I would love to be able to buy a reasonably priced ticket for WWDC, which was online. WDC over the past few years, and I, I went last year because I was invited to participate in something with Apple, and I, it was it's interesting because the sort of value proposition for me was a real close thing. I got to do this great thing. I got to interview Sarah Herlinger from Apple, but I spent several days there and spent a bunch of money that I didn't directly recoup. And so it was a challenge to figure out, did I, what am I doing enough to make this thing worthwhile? Am I having enough conversations in corridors? And I'm an introvert. So it's, it's hard. I'm not, I'm not the person walking up to you and going, wow, I bet you developed some great software. Why don't you tell me about that? <laughs> so I, I always laugh when I hear about the conversations in co- corridors because that's usually not me. Sometimes I have had great accidental conversations. But another thing that I've, I learned about, I've heard of it before, but I hadn't really seen it up close until I got to go last year, was how many alt WWDC events there are. There's alt conf and there's a whole bunch, but there's a whole bunch of them. There's layered, there's, I, there's, there's five or six of them within some proximity to the convention center in San Jose. And I venture to guess that at least as many people are going to those events combined as going to WWDC itself because WWDC is this closed thing. And so I guess I, I wonder what is going to happen to all of that all of that. Are people, is there going to be an alt conf? I mean, I, we can't answer that question on this call, but is there going to be an alt conf? Is there going to be an outlet for those people who normally interact beyond WWDC, whether to do business with one another or just to sort of, you know, meet one another and interact creatively? And I, I, I guess I wonder how that's even going to be possible. Hmm. I think, yeah, I think they'll find a way. They'll have sessions through, you know, very high numbers of of delegates through you, know, you can have accounts on zoom up to a thousand i think um and then the break yeah, there are breakout rooms in zoom there is that capability as well so whether that could recreate a water cooler type scenario i don't know but yeah i think that that's the future i mean as i say as somebody who doesn't want to spend the money to fly to san jose 
I hope that works out because I'd like to participate in a way that would be meaningful but wouldn't cost me a bunch of money and make me spend a lot of time thinking that I should be going up to people in corridors that I'm not. I wish we had spent more time before all of this trying to figure out ways to to casually meet online. I mean, that aren't, and I don't know how you would handle it exactly. I mean, the way you keep a griefer out of WWDC is you charge 1500 bucks. The way you keep a griefer out of Zoom, I don't even know. I mean, there were all those stories the first couple of weeks that everybody was staying <laughs> yeah. in about uh, yeah. the uh, Zoom bombing or whatever they were called, right? Where people were just coming in and, and disrupting meetings. Um, I, because of the work that I was doing with Mission Log uh, for years, uh, was working with a VR platform called Sensar which was owned by the same people who uh, ran uh, Second Life. It recently got sold to somebody. I don't even know to whom it got sold. I think the platform is still out there. But it never got anywhere near Second Life at its height, which was basically, you know, you could just wander around and chat with people and whatever. Uh, part of the problem, I think, with Sensar was, Eric maybe continues to be, they've made it accessible to all kinds of, of platforms, all the way back to Windows 7, I believe, not the Mac, of course, because, you know, Rift and all that stuff. But they made it accessible to a bunch of people. But the problem is, if you're coming through on your computer, while you can see the person who's actually in, in their VR thing, you can't really communicate with them very well. So if you even have a microphone, you can't talk to them. If you have a Rift, you can talk to somebody else with a Rift. Otherwise, you're texting back and forth to each other, all of which is to say with millions and millions of dollars behind it and years spent developing it, they still haven't figured out the whole thing of if I bump into that person, will I actually be able to speak to them? And so then when you ask mm -hmm. about AltConf, I mean, AltConf was, I can't get into WWDC, let's do this other thing instead, right? But then if WWDC becomes a thing that's completely accessible to everybody, is there is there... And I hate to I, I hate to say this. I'm not against AltConf or anything like that. But it's like when Apple stopped going to MacWorld, MacWorld continued for a few years. But in the end, they couldn't they couldn't sustain it. And so, if if the conference becomes a thing that everybody can attend, even if it's lost some of its luster, is there need for an AltConf at that point, or does the need for that go away, or does it have the same thing because? We haven't solved the problem of how do I bump into somebody online without it turning into like a chat roulette <laughs> or something, right. you know, something oh, seedy. We don't want that developer chat yeah. roulette. Well, and then too, Apple, if whatever reconstituted WWDC, online WWDC there is, it seems unlikely that they're going to facilitate the gather the gathering of the crowd. That's never what they did. I mean, they provided a convention center and they had a bunch of sessions that you had to pay money to get into. So the space provided the opportunity for the crowd to form. But I would be really surprised if they created an online space that was for that purpose. They still seem to be focused on either one-to-many in the case of presentations or one-to-one -one in the case of labs and other hands-on places for developers to communicate with Apple engineers. Do me a favor, though, really quickly. Liken that to what happens in the, uh, in the Apple stores with their whole town hall thing and their whole, you know, mm. avenue and gallery and all that stuff, which, I mean, was maybe born of Angela Ahrens. I mean, she set that up and then, you know, did her five years and walked away. I don't know what the changes are there, but, I mean, do you see that as being the same thing? Is it still very much consumer to Apple or, I mean, obviously, when they're talking mm. about um, today at Apple, that is very much a one-to-many thing. Fewer than WTC, obviously, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It that feels more, I mean, it feels more interactive and, 
But I don't know. I just it's still Apple to consumer I, I, though. It's not. I mean, they're not yeah, encouraging. Like right. I'm not going to bump into you there and start talking. Probably we're both going to stand there and talk about why it takes so long to get a genius right. bar appointment. And you're not going to you're not going to teach me how to use logic while we're waiting or anything like that. I mean, probably not. <laughs> which you shouldn't have to do. But it's unlikely that we're going to be trading tips and that's. Hmm. Maybe that just speaks to how introverted you and I are, though. That's that's it. I yes, almost don't want to talk to <laughs> Apple people when I'm at an Apple store. You know, <laughs> Standoffish I can be. I want to talk to Ken's point about the VR experience and how that, you know, is seen as a a good way of simulating being in an event, you know, kind of really being there. And I have these Bose AR frames, which I absolutely love. They are just audio only. They're basically a glorified Bluetooth headset, but they have a compass in there. And so when you turn your head... Um, for example, I have a navigation app called Soundscape and POIs as I'm walking past, you know, points of interest like shops and, you know, bus stops and stuff like that, um, pan around me as I turn my head mm. around. So I can exactly hear where they're coming from. You can buy, uh, download, sorry, lots of free um, audio scapes where you can be in an immersive audio environment. And as you turn your head around, you know, you're panning in the action and stuff like that. So in the absence of VR, and obviously, I'm very excited about Apple glasses as and when they ever materialize, because I'm sure that they'll do things even, you know, more sophisticated and clever. But in the absence of kind of an immersive thing like that, if they are going to put on a, uh, you know, lockdown experience, so you're not going to have crowd, you're going to have somebody, probably just one person at a time on that screen there delivering their presentation. This might sound cheesy, but to me as a blind person, I would absolutely love there to be some audio, uh, some crowd audio there layered on. I know it's going to be fake, but you, to take it from a last year's WWDC or something when, you know, before the, the speaker came on the stage, make it real, but make it, well, for me as with Bose frames, it would be positional. So as I turn my head, the speaker will always be in the front and I can, you know, feel like I'm there in the audience. And for anyone that's got, that kind of uh, tech on their face, then they would they would get that too. Plus, being able to see the the person on the stage, obviously. But even if you just got earbuds in, I think layering on some real crowd, unless people think that's super cheese, I think that would um, add something to what they're going to deliver. Because at the moment, it's going to be pretty dry. They're obviously going to be able to do some well produced videos uh, shot on iPhone. But um, yeah, see, I don't know. I think we'll have to wait. Here's see. what I think we ought to do right right now. This is the idea, and if anybody does it, we get a cut. Uh, somebody should create an app that is a soundboard for WWDC keynote and for every keynote going forward, because there are always those groaner laughs, you know, that Federighi does, right. or or they're going to pause. They're going to pause for applause as they always do, but there won't be anybody there to applaud. So when they say it's just incredible, and then they wait, or maybe they could flash an applause sign down at the bottom, and then you hit the applause button you on go. your iOS app, and you know there's all the clapping, and then yeah. we move on participation yeah and then you can have as much crowd noise or as little crowd noise as you want we'll sneak in a we'll sneak in a cricket button as well just so when they say and it's only fifteen hundred dollars and you like you know cricket it's a cross between the wwdc app and backpack studio whatever it's called so yeah like it right this is your riff track of the wwdc oh god i love that idea oh with samples of federica here and you make it into a podcast later and then you this is your sort of mystery science theater version of the WWDC keynote that you're selling for your riff tracks or whatever. (laughs) 
So we're obviously in the midst of the pandemic and probably will be for some time. And it's changed everything about the way Apple conducts from WWDC all the way to Apple stores, as we've discussed. And we're talking about how it affects Apple's ability to sell products, to promote products and that sort of thing. So I guess I wonder, what did you think in 2020, at this point in 2020, that you might like to, might have been talking about or might like to have been talking about in terms of Apple? What were your expectations for the year, sort of hopes for the year that kind of don't feel like we're going to get to talk about? Hmm. Well, I don't know that it's a thing that we're not going to get to talk about. I mean, I would have figured that this year would have been the year to talk about just services, services, services. Uh, as far as, you know, Apple's performance and things like that, we started to, I can't remember where I was saying this, it was probably on an episode of In a Few Minutes, but we had started to sort of turn a corner where Wall Street was finally coming to a place of going, yeah, you know, I think there's legs to this services thing. And and sort of looking at, you know, the phone and um, other hardware and services all together and not just saying, well, services are never going to make up for, because that was never supposed to be the point. And now the problem is all those articles are coming back because, well, services aren't going to make up for the lost in iPhone sales. And while they were never supposed to, there was also supposed to be never, never supposed to be that kind of big loss in iPhone sales. So I'm sorry, I don't think that answers your question exactly. I'm fascinated by how they navigate uh, through this it's, as far as what I thought we would be talking about. I thought it would be services still, um, unfortunately. Yeah, I guess so I guess that does answer your question. I don't think we're going to be able to have that conversation in the same way that we would have because while services stood to be a, a just a just a gigantic growth and have people standing around in awe of that uh, possibly and now it's, you know, yeah, but so that would have been the one I would have thought we would have concentrated on this year. For me, if I could wave a magic wand, I would like to be talking about how Apple are going to be bringing out some glasses, or at least a rumor. So I mentioned that a moment ago, and why am I banging on about it? Well, it's because yeah. if they had a camera, and I know that's a big if, because the shower experience with Google Glass has tainted the sector <laughs> forever. But um, I think that as a blind person, I don't want to have to get my phone out every time to use these AI things that will uh, tell me who I'm talking to, et cetera, et cetera, doing a video meeting with. Um, so yeah, if that if I could wave a wand, it would be that. And I don't care if it has a heads-up display, because um, obviously I can't use that, but a camera and speech output, you know, to tell me what's going on. And now that, uh, was it iOS 13 or 12, where you can share profile pictures in contact so they can go and, you know, you can populate that and you... Um, Casey uh, Liss's brilliant app for scraping them from social media as well, you'll have everyone's... Uh, faces anyway. So I wouldn't even have to um, learn the software, you know, teach the software who, what Ken looks like and what Shelley looks like, because it would have been, you know, got from my contact list or whatever. So, uh, you know, to be able to just look anywhere and have um, objects and text read to me and faces recognized would be absolutely brilliant. I don't care what it will mean for the mainstream users of, of Apple glasses. I just want them. <laughs> In the absence of that, I was... I am still very excited to um, when the final uh, announcement comes out about AirTags. And this goes back to the iPhone SE story earlier, because the one omission from it was the what, the U1 chip, is it? Or the, the chip that will allow um, 
much more sensitive sharing of airdrop so it will be much more familiar with when people are close to you and it will more intelligently be able to choose the person you are intending to airdrop it to but it will also work with air tags it will be required for the air tags to work why am i excited as a blind person if something is an inch away from my feeling hand it might as well be a mile away so um i will be a heavy user of air tag technology hopefully it will be in uh you know nice and small and in a range of different devices or little stickers or whatever you can stick on i have lots of tile tracker things and at the time when you need them to find your keys or whatever that's the time when the echo skill or the tile app on your phone says we cannot connect with them right now i know this is not what you want to hear <laughs> but please try again later and that's to do with the <laughs> proprietary nature of iOS not allowing things to always be polling in the background and stuff but yeah so these air tags will definitely work better the interesting thing about services ken is how reliant we are on the services that we already have especially those to do with entertainment and i don't know about you but because i'm working even though i'm working from home for another organization i'm still using personal storage because it's easier than like we i i have access to onedrive if i want it but i've mm -hmm. had my icloud a personal icloud account connected to work for a while and i usually usually used it to transfer stuff from one mac to another i would just put it in a folder and then it would be waiting for me when i got to my desk so the services that i already have I'm using more. Now whether people are going out and getting new services and saying I'd like to have Apple TV Plus, I'd like to have an Apple Music subscription, I don't know. Now that doesn't mean that Apple is out there saying, "Hey, we're your COVID-19 solution," nor is it an opportunity has it been an opportunity yet for them to say we have new stuff. And I said long when Apple TV Plus was announced and everybody got the free subscription who was buying who bought new app Apple gear, I said 2020 is going to be the year where they're going to have to make that case probably starting in the summer. You need to keep that subscription because we're going to provide you more and more and more compelling content because they're fighting so hard against Disney Plus and and the rest of them. Yeah, it's 5 bucks though. <laughs> I mean and 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 this is honestly coming at just the worst time. I mean not I mean, I, I, Yes, because you're right. What we should be hitting at the end of this year is season two of Dickinson, season two of C, season two of The Morning Show. Uh, none of that's going to happen. So so what happens? I mean, do they extend it for another year? Um, the way <laughs> that might not be a bad idea. I mean, either that or they do. This may be pushing them to a point now of having to go back and buy uh, somebody else's library of content or at least access to somebody else's library of content. Because getting me to spend five bucks on season two of those shows was going to be fairly simple. Getting me to spend five bucks when there is no new stuff coming, unless they keep making Fraggle Rock from people's houses. I mean, I don't see I don't see how this can I don't see how this can continue. So uh, Disneyland and Disney World for people who have season passes. Of course, they haven't been able to go since the middle of March. And so what Disneyland and Disney World, and I assume Disney Hong Kong and everybody else are doing for season pass holders is they're giving you two options. They'll either give you uh, whatever prorated amount back for what you weren't able to use, or they're like, yeah, listen, when we're able to open this thing back up, your pass will pick back up. So if you had one month left on your pass before uh, uh, social distancing started, you'll have a month again. 
if you had nine months, you'll have nine months again. And maybe Apple TV should do something like that. I mean, maybe they should, you know, say, right, you were supposed to get and then and now here we are and there's nothing. So it's just free for you. You've had it. Keep having it for free until we start producing new stuff again. I don't know. That's just one of the services, though. I mean, there's still I'm enough of a news junkie now that I've, I've had Apple News Plus pretty much since they announced it because I hate the paywall. I hate coming across something that won't let me read the thing that I want to read, which is you know weird now because a lot of the COVID-19 stuff is free from most organizations because they don't want to be the one that kept you from seeing it because you didn't have money to buy it. I've had the Apple Music thing forever. I mean, it just felt like it was it was going to be a gradual growth thing, not so much introducing new. Really, though, the thing that was most interesting to me was watching the financial side go, all right, I see now. But the problem is now they're too busy seeing how many iPhones Apple's not selling. I was one of the consultants on C um, to make sure that the mm. blind angle was, you know, done in a certain, you know, satisfactorily. To be really, really honest, I'd be quite happy if they didn't renew <laughs> with season two. Yeah. <laughs> well, they've already renewed, so you're going to get, you're going to get, see, well, except now, of course, everything's up in the That's air. That's a show but, that it's hard to do from somebody's yeah, house. I yeah, don't it's, it's kind of amazing. <laughs> it's a bit too epic, I think. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, the heart was in the right place. No, they're not. They're not doing the Zoom I, I call do think episode the, of uh, That's As true. adorable yeah. as Fraggle Rock is, and yeah, Robin and I have already had this conversation about. It. And I watched I will not some have Robin. Anything it was fun. said against Fraggle Rock? I'm enjoying the Fraggle Rock, but as adorable as it is, I tell you, there's going to be a point where the backlash against home-based entertainment will be righteous, and people will just be like, "I I hate this because I'm t-, you know." But people are people are fickle. What are you going to do? At least they're not uh, taking their clothes off. Well, that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> Let's hope that stops as well. Well, we've come to the point in the program where I like to pose our one more thing question. And this sort of segues from what we were just talking about. Uh, We've probably all seen the uh, articles or even heard the podcasts. I made one uh, called What to Watch Now, What to Read Now, What to Listen to Now. So everybody has offered many recommendations for entertainment and diversion in the COVID-19 era. And so instead of asking you what you would like us to watch, read, or listen to, I'd like to ask what recommendations someone else has given you that you have accepted and how it turned out. Robin, do you have one? Yes. I I don't do TV. And when I could see back in the 80s, 70s, 90s, I, I was obviously, you know, hugely into TV and movies and I can remember them all like frame by frame. So if I was going to watch anything, it would be from that era so I could have you know, some nostalgia and idea of what's going on. But otherwise, I'm a spoken word kind of guy. So Radio 4 is, you know, the the talk only radio show, uh, radio station by the BBC over here. I listen to loads of podcasts and audiobooks. And I'm very busy doing podcasts like the Daily Echo Skill Demo show that we talked about earlier. But um, somebody did suggest in this is going to be all this is going to sound really, really bad. Um, Watching a film from, I think it was 95, um, Outbreak. Um, the family were really keen to watch it. And in the time of, of pandemic, it's not a good idea to watch one about a <laughs> pandemic. Now, you know, maybe you put it in perspective because this particular one, within 24 hours, it turned all your internal organs to liquid, basically. Um, oh, so it was, and it was 100% um, pass on rate. So... 
Yeah, but no, it wasn't a good plan. And I told this to um, some friends of mine and they said, look, we've watched this one called Contagion. Try that one. That sounds, you know, we really, really enjoyed it. I'm not going to watch that one after having watched Not going to double down so, on the pandemic entertainment. <laughs> yeah. Is it kill or cure? So for me, it's an anti-tip, which is don't watch any pandemic uh, end of the world movies, guys. Fair enough. Ken, how about you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's terrible. I Well, I, I, let me really quickly, just sort of branching off that before I go to the, uh, other people's suggestions. I um, <laughs> So I watched The Looming Tower and The Handmaid's Tale. So I, I didn't watch The Handmaid's Tale. I'm sorry. I read Ooh, The Handmaid's Tale book. and I watched The Looming Tower, yeah. which is like, why? Because it's not depressing enough outside? What am I doing? So, yeah. Somebody had wanted me to watch uh, Future Man. And and I tried watching Future Man a couple of times, and it just seemed really sophomoric. But it turns out I kind of got in the mood for sophomoric this time around. So I watched the first season of Future Man, and it really is just is sophomoric with sort of some interesting science fiction stuff happening occasionally. Like there are the... I mean, there are some funny jokes... Uh, uh, that are recurring, and it really is. I mean, it's 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 blue humor. It's not. I don't feel good about a lot of the stuff that I thought was funny in the first season. What's weird though is I've now gone on to season two, and they're doing kind of mind blowing science fiction stuff, which I didn't expect at all. I mean, they've gone to really serious science fiction still along with the you know uh, uh, frat boy humor a lot of times but they're playing with sci-fi stuff that is kind of like you know nuts to me and the whole reason that came up now is because season three which is the final season of future man just dropped uh so i'm not suggesting it necessarily i would say it worked out well for me <laughs> but that was one that some basically i basically i've gone back to the things that people have been suggesting for years the other thing you and I talked about, though, Shelley, I mean, you're working from home doing the same job you were before. I'm still working from home doing as much as I was. So I haven't found a lot of extra time to watch TV uh, or or read or any of those things. But, yeah, I'm going back and finishing stuff <laughs> that people have suggested, like The Handmaid's Tale and The Looming Tower and Future Man. So there you go. Where can people find Future Man? Uh, it's on Hulu. Okay. Half-hour episodes, and seriously, I mean, it's there's a lot of frat boy humor in it. So I would understand if somebody came back and said, why? Because that was my, <laughs> the first two times I tried it, that was my take as well. And finally, the third time, I was like, all right, I keep hearing, so, so I'll finally try. And uh, for me personally, it ended up being worth it. I'm not saying it's going to be for everybody, but uh, there's a, yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. We've been warned. So watch at your yeah. own peril or risk or something like that. Well, <laughs> I I love when I come up with a question that I think is a really good idea. And then I realize I have to answer it myself. And the only way I can is by cheating a little bit because, oh, yeah, I didn't quite follow. These aren't explicitly recommendations, but they're rabbit holes I went down on based on, down based on what other people did suggest. So – uh, I was a fan of the singer-songwriter John Prine, who died recently, mm. and I specifically remember a an appearance on Austin City Limits many years ago that I loved and where I think I discovered him. And he was just this long-haired, incredibly good songwriter who sounded like no one else. And I couldn't find that performance. And after he died, I also 
was aware of a lot of people getting on YouTube and singing his songs. People like Mary Chapin Carpenter and Joan Baez and Cheryl Wheeler, of whom I'm a great fan and who I have been posting videos from Cheryl because I run a mailing list for her fans. I've been posting videos of, of hers on YouTube. She basically does a song every day from her kitchen. And having posted all those videos, I've been getting tons of recommendation for all these other singer-songwriters that are posting from, in many cases, some very nice houses. So if you want to see what Joan Baez's kitchen looks like, you can <laughs> you can hear her sing. Uh, I don't know how often she's posting, but she's doing several of these. She's done several, including a John Prine song. Mary Chapin Carpenter is posting every day, and I wish that she would learn to turn her phone horizontal. That's my only real complaint. Uh, and so I, I'm enjoying them, and I like that they're just bite size. If they were, I haven't watched a lot of concerts online. People have said, you know, go and watch, go to a go to a rave or watch a concert. I don't really have the time or attention span for that. But if you give me one or two songs played well and sung well on a guitar, uh, I'm all about it. Well, Ken and Robin, thank you so much for being on Parallel and talking with me about Apple stuff. Not that we have ever done that before. Uh, before we go, I want to give each of you a chance to plug the things you're doing online. Uh, Ken, macOS Ken, and other wonderful things? Uh, yeah, the other thing I would say, well, there are two other things. I do host a podcast for uh, the guys from Secure Mac. It is called The Checklist by Secure Mac, where we uh, tackle um, security issues and uh, hopefully give you things that you can go out and do yourself to make yourself a bit more safer or a bit more safe, excuse me. Really, it's probably, I mean, for people listening to this show, it's probably more for your mom, your dad, you know, somebody who calls you and says, so I got a call that said my my computer had been hacked. Okay, give them this show. So the checklist, find that wherever uh, wherever you find podcasts. And then uh, in a few minutes is a new thing that I started doing 15 weeks ago now. Uh, where I get together with a friend, kind of like this one, except instead of doing an hour, we do an hour and divide it up into five days. So you get just like a 15-minute quick hit of of uh, fun conversation, usually about something Apple-related, might be general technology-related, and occasionally it's about where you would sleep in Disneyland if you were locked in. So, you know, all kinds of stuff, and that is in a few minutes. You can find that wherever you find podcasts, too. And then, of course, Mac OS Ken is what it's been forever. So that's a great one. Very it cool. Is. Robin. Oh, stop it. I shouldn't have said it was a great one. Ah, oh, don't do that. <laughs> no, we'll agree ah. with you. Why not? So, Robin, where can you be find, found online? What's that daily podcast you produce again? Yeah, so it's called Dot to Dot. All, uh, th- all words, no like, number two or anything, just three three separate words. It's a terribly named podcast. It's about the A-Lady, A-L-E-X-A. I'm not going to say her name. There's one right here. Um, and every single day we cover a different skill, whether it be a game or productivity or you know meditation, whatever it might be, or loads of built-in stuff as well. She's getting more and more sophisticated all the time. And we're up to episode 1180 at the time of recording, and we've not missed a day. And so I would, you know, thoroughly recommend people have a have a look at that. We obviously it's a podcast, so you can get it wherever you want to. But we're also on the Echo. And the best way, if you want to add it to your flash briefing, if if that's not too intrusive, then you would ask her to open the daily five minute skill demo show. And I just, you know, I could go on for a long time about how transformative the Echo has been for older people, for people with disabilities. My sister, for example, my whole family is blind and she also has MS. And so she can't see, 
She can't move anything other than her head. She can talk fine. And she had a £7,500 piece of kit called a possum. And that allowed her to whack a button with her head and take whole minutes to go down through spoken menus, um, which enabled her to control her TV, turn the radio on and off, uh, the lights, that sort of thing. Not that she needed those, but anyway, um, it's nice to be able to control your environment. But it would take whole minutes just to change the channel on her TV, for example. And now that's been replaced by an Echo, uh, Harmony Home Hub, which is like a um, A-Lady-enabled a universal programmable remote control and a couple of other things and now she can do much more than that much more efficiently for 250 pounds about what's that 300 dollars or something so technology is absolutely transformative and everyone that's listening to this show who loves tech imagine layering on top of that how it absolutely really changes people's lives you know um yeah. for me you know, as a blind person, tech came along at the right time in the 80s for me. If it didn't, you know, if I didn't have a talking laptop, I wouldn't have got through university. I might be one of those 73% of people that, um, you know, aren't fortunate enough to be in work. And because I moved to Warwick, as I've mentioned, nice part of the world, with work, I happened to meet my wife. And now I've got, you know, a family and two gorgeous children. So this technology is really, really important. Um, and it's brilliant that everyone loves it. But, you know, making it um, such that people with a range of disabilities, as Apple does, they absolutely prioritise that. And that means that all of these people are able to get much, even more out of it than everybody listening to this, unless they happen to have a disability or impairment. So this is really, really big stuff. I also do a weekly podcast about tech and vision impairment called Tech Talk for the RNIB. And I do the Maccessibility podcast, which I'm sure that Shelley can Thank you, Robin. Yes, Maxisability is, as I said at the top, a biweekly show featuring a panel of folks interested in, used to be just Max, but now it's anything Apple-related and accessibility, and it's everything from topical discussions to rants every now and then. And now and then, when I'm hosting, we talk really fast. When others are hosting, <laughs> we don't have to talk quite so fast, but that's just how we roll. If you want to find out more about this very podcast, you can go to relay.fm slash parallel. You can subscribe at any podcatcher you like. You can also follow the show at Parallel Pods on Twitter, or you can follow me on Twitter at Shelley. And I always invite listeners to make suggestions about topics or guests that they would like to hear. We will be back with another episode of Parallel in two weeks. Bye for now. <laughs>